So we will continue in our series in the book of James, and let's have God's word open us to、uh, James, chapter four, verse one to twelve. James chapter four, verse one to twelve, and please rise for the reading of God's word. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this that your passions are at war with you, within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You co- you cover and cannot cannot obey, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly, to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is no purpose that the, the Scripture says, "He yearns jealously over the Spirit that He has made to dwell in us," but He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, "God opposes the proud." But gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, your sinners, and purify your hearts, your double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law. But a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, and he who is able to save and to de- destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? This is God's word. Join me again in prayer once more. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are a good father to us. We thank you, Lord, that you allow us to call you not just our father but our friend. We thank you that you are our provider and our protector. We ask that this morning, as we hear your word once more, that you would give us a genuine and deep heavenly wisdom, Lord, that we may discern what true wisdom is, that we may discern what true passions and pleasures you call us to in our Lord Christ Jesus. So, God, would you soften our hearts and open our eyes, and allow us to grasp the truths that you have set aside for your people? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, many of you know I am a big movie and show watcher. I don't read much. In fact, I don't know how to read. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I don't read much. But when I do find a good book, it is very not just entertaining and enlightening, but it does provide a certain escape. And I start to understand how people can read for pleasure. I thought it was the weirdest thing. To see someone sit at a coffee shop or at a beach and read a book, and I always wonder, are they really reading? How can you read 
if you're not studying. I came across one book. Um, it's called When You Lunch with the Emperor, and it is endorsed by um, some, some people that you will know that I'll mention later. And the quote that's given is, it's always funny. Uh, it's an interesting book. The author is uh, Ludwig Bellemans. Some of you may know him. He's the author of the children's book, Madeline. But he writes this book, and it accounts his adventures and how he experienced life in all the colorful ways. And this is what, uh, in the introduction, someone writes of him. He uh, was destined in many ways to be a, a person in the hotel business, like his father before him, like his uncle. He was on his way as he came to America, New York, to work in the hotel industry. Uh, but through all the many adventures, we see that he is able to find a different calling, a more colorful and exciting one. And this is what, in the introduction, it says about him. Eventually, his writing saved him from the hotel trade, and he could live the life he loved, that of the bon vivant, roaming the places he loved, Paris, London, Triol, the Mediterranean, the Caribbean, South America, pending exotic stories and travel pieces for the likes of the New Yorker, Vogue, Holiday, and Town and Country. This allowed him to keep traveling, to stay at the finest hotels, and dine where he so cho choose. In describing one word stuck out to me, bon vivant, because I had no, what, what, no idea what it meant, nor could I pronounce it. So I looked it up, and I think it's a French word, and it basically describes someone who is a traveler, a liver of life, someone who knows the pleasures, who's cultured, who sees, who tastes, and who is one for adventure. A bon vivant, a traveler, a citizen of the world. Like the man described here, I would venture to guess that many of us in our own small ways are seekers and curators of pleasure. To each his own, of course, but nonetheless, some of us find it in a small piece of chocolate throughout the day, and some of us need grand experiences of seeing the world. But the question today is what pleasures and passions drive us? What are we proud to present to others about our lives? I'm sure it's nothing so crass and overt as wealth, but perhaps our fashions, our travels, our appetites, our knowledge, our experiences, our desires and achievements, our status. Think about the things we like to put at the forefront of an introduction of our social media. When someone asks, what do you do? How, do you have any plans this summer? We like to present ourselves in such a way that we are bon vivants, that we like culture, that we desire to taste and to see and to travel and to experience life, that we are people who are passionate, people who desire to seek out and to find. Perhaps some of us, there's a lack of this communication because many, perhaps for us, You've been filled already with these things, and you are cynically discontent and disillusioned with the appetites of worldly pleasures, of course, until we are alone. Whichever the case, James calls into question our ultimate passion. He says, what do you find most pleasure in? What are you most passionate about? And this is the driving force of what James tries to get at today. 
and he addresses the church, we'll see in this text that he first calls out a problem that he sees. Then he'll point out that, in fact, within this problem, that there is an immense blind spot to which then he will call the church to come back to God. And as we think about this, and as we look at the message that James gives to the church in the context here, we can relate in many ways. Not much has changed in the ways that we seek out pleasures and passions. So the first thing he'll do is point out the problem, the blind spot, and then give the call back. So look with me once more in your Bibles in verses 1 through 3. Let's see what James says. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. It's clear that the church of Christ, as they profess that they believe in Jesus, as they profess that they find their joy in Jesus, is busy with following their passions and the pleasures of this world. Here we see that James's tone switches. In the beginning, right, we called forth that James is a straight shooter, but he is also a loving, tender voice. And so he addresses the church for the most part, in his letter here as beloved brothers and sisters. Yet he will come face to face with the people here and confront them as you adulterous people. And he's calling out something that's happening in the church. There are fighting, there's quarreling, there's, there's disagreements. Now some commentators go back and forth as James alluding to the fact that there's just squabbling during fellowship time or, or hurt and strained relationships. Or is it that people are actually murdering one another? Whatever the case, I think we can well assume that in this church, although it's filled with Christians who profess that they love the Lord Jesus Christ, is a mess. Whether it's subtle and spiritual in the secret places of their hearts, or whether it's overt and outright and fighting between the pews, we see that the church here is not lacking in sinfulness. And James points out that all this disruption, this quarreling, this fighting, this murderous posture towards one another comes from a source, a simple source, which is our passions, our sinful, lustful passions, a desire to simply seek out our own pleasures. And the word that is used here in the Greek, hedon, It's where we get the word hedonism. James uses and says the reason why there's so much infighting, the reason why there's so much bitterness and jealousy and vile practice, isn't it because that all of us are chasing after our own pleasures, our own passions? And James is saying, slow down for a second. Here is a problem. Now, I know many of us are trying to imagine what could possibly be going on. And I'm sure that there are many obvious things to call out, to repent for. But given a group of people, there are probably also so many subtle things that happen in the dynamics of the church. Subtle things of jealousy and bitterness. And subtle ways of competition and one-upping one another. Subtle ways of quarreling and poking fun, yet really hating and despising and causing division. 
The church here, much like the church now, is experiencing individual Christians who are wrestling and struggling to believe in God, yet fight their passions and their sinful desires as it pertains to the relationship with one another. Some of you guys have the unhappy misfortune of experiencing and seeing this yourself. Growing up in the church, you probably have witnessed many elders arguing, church splits, scandals, lies, cover-ups, which are not unique to the Korean church, but to any church that are made up with sinners. A brother of mine shared the story. He was at a general assembly filled with pastors, and they were confronting a certain pastor about a scandal, and he refused to step down from his church. This turned into quarreling, escalated into fighting, and supposedly the others who were there at the meeting, not involved, were instructed to link arms and barricade the doors so that no one could come in or come out until the police had arrived. We see a lot of messiness, a lot of brokenness. The reality is, as James points out, with all the things that happen, with all the broken things that we hate about church, of all the hypocrisy, isn't it because we as individual Christians are pursuing after our own selfish pleasures, our own selfish passions. And so he's trying to slow the church down. He says, guys, there's a problem. We say we believe in Jesus. We say we're one. Yet we are following after our own passions. Here it's interesting as he writes, he links this with prayer. In verse 3, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend in your passions. You know, I like, I do enjoy, and hopefully you don't judge me, the blasphemous yet entertaining movie, Bruce Almighty. It came out years ago. And in the movie, the character Bruce somehow gets all of God's powers. And there's a scene where he sits in front of his computer and all these emails are coming in, which are prayer requests. Not only that, he can hear them audibly and he gets inundated and filled with all the people's desires and wants and needs, and he is overwhelmed by the self-centeredness, the greed, the desire for people to, to, to increase in whatever they have. And so in the movie, out of frustration, he just says, yes, send, and he says yes to everyone's prayer request, and we see that this spins everything out of control. I wonder what prayer requests the types of prayers that the people here in chapter 4 were praying, that James is saying, there's all this quarreling, there's all this fighting, and yet you, you ask wrongly to spend on your passions. You don't receive what you're asking for because it'll only add to the chaos. And you can almost hear the types of prayer requests that are going up in a context here filled with people who are separated by by class division of wealth and poor, by people who are trying to jockey for status to become rabbis and teachers and positions of authority. And James here, you can almost imagine the people's prayer requests crying out, Lord, help me to become a teacher, an elder, or a deacon of the church so I can have people's respect. Lord, help me to have my business plans work out so that I can retire early and travel and see the world and just relax. Lord, help me to move up in my company so I can show my rivals. Lord, help me to pass my exam so I can and finally achieve the career that I worked so hard for and be comfortable and secure. And in all these things, you can almost hear our own prayer requests. 
How often we pray so wrongly, how often we ask so selfishly, how often we try to get God to fulfill our passions and our desires. And James is saying, folks in the church, not only are we wrong in the ways that we are trying to worship God and relate to one another, we are wrong because of our sinfulness, even in the way we come to God in prayer. Now, these things in and of itself are not bad, right? When I was a youth pastor, often when I asked the students, what's your prayer request? That I would get an AA my exam. Really? That's what you want to ask the God of the universe for? That you would get an A in your exam? Why? So that I can get good grades. Why? So that I can go to good college. Why? So I can get a good job. Why? So I can get married to the right person. Why? So I can live in the place that I want to. Why? I don't know. Many of us fall into similar things. What do we pray for? What are the passions and the pleasures that you desire that you come to the Lord with? And it's a tough question to ask, but we have to ask, are those things in line with God, with what God wants us to be passionate about? Of course, we should be praying for our families. We can pray for comfort, for security, for safety. For those of us who are struggling, we can, of course, pray even for more financial means, for support. But at the core of it, James is pointing out here the heart of the people even to the point of the way they pray. So then the question is, do we ultimately pray to change God's heart? Or do we pray in hopes that we would be changed? A proper understanding of prayer would favor the latter. That prayer is ultimately about coming to God and not simply asking for what we want and need, but coming to God so that he could even inform us in what we want and need. I think the language of commerce here is intentional. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. The word here, to spend it, is also found elsewhere in the story of the prodigal son when we're told that he spent or that he squandered his inheritance, that he did it wastefully and recklessly on his own desires. And James is saying, church... He's trying to help us logically follow church. What are the things that causes quarrels and fightings among us? Is it not a rivalry and a competition in our own hearts that are warring against each other because we want this, somebody else wants that? Church, isn't it because our hearts are selfish to the point if we can't get what we want, we will cheat and lie and steal and murder? James goes further. I know you pray. I know you ask God for things. But consider what you're asking for. They could be good things in and of itself, but are you asking so that it can further your own passions, your own desires? And you see, James here now is the James that many of us are familiar with, the in-your-face, the unrelenting, the loving, the passionate, the confronting, the holding us accountable church. Isn't the quarreling and the fighting caused because we all want our own way? And so to the second point, he reveals a blind spot. Again, it's, it's important to note that here James is now addressing the people, you adulterous people. Oh, snap. As you read the text, you can almost see the shift. 
And he goes on. We'll read verse 4 through 6 once more. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealousy over the spirit that he has made us, made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the humble, the humble who come to him in prayer who lays all the passions and pleasures down. You know, when you start a phrase with, do you not know, it's to point out something that should be obvious, but is somehow missed. James is saying, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? You know, if we are chasing after our own passions and pleasures in this world, it's inevitable that we must befriend the world. Right? It's all about networking, paying your dues, proving yourself to the gatekeepers that you are worthy, that you are approved, that you are enough, that you can hang, that you can get down, that you can contribute, that you can be a part of, that you can keep the secrets, that you can be one of the many. And here, James is relating the way that we follow our passions and desires in such a way that it means that we will have to compromise. And therefore, he's saying, you cannot have both and. You cannot be a follower of Christ who subscribes to the wisdom of Scripture, yet at the same time says, you know what? Here's worldly wisdom. Here's worldly treasure. I want this as well. James is saying that there are two different dynamics in which we can live in. And he says to be a friend of the world, so to speak, to love the world in such a way where we desire to be friends with it, that we desire to have everything that it has, means that we are ultimately making God our enemy. And I do want to be clear here because it doesn't mean that we cannot enjoy things. Christians, and and this is the kicker of it all, Christians should be able to enjoy every good and perfect gift that God has given to them in its proper portion, in its proper time. That is true. But becoming a friend of the world, following and living in the worldly system says this, yeah, but you can have as much as you want, whenever you want, and however you want it. And if I can confess to you, that's often how I want to taste the world, as much as I want, however I want, whenever I want, with whoever I want. My passions, my, 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 my desire to seek out pleasure more often than not falls into the category of wanting to befriend the world, to draw closer to that system, to taste a little more, to get a little more, to experience a little more. And James is saying, do you not know if you are following your passions and your pleasures in this sinful way that you are making yourself an enemy of God God opposes this. He opposes the proud. But he gives grace to those who are humble. And so then as he transitions into this, he's trying to show the church the blind spot. Hey, folks, even the way we pray is a good indicator of where our hearts are at. Hey, church, if there is quarreling, if there are fighting, if there are dissensions between us, we experience to lesser degrees in our own household, right, with our children, with our loved ones. He's saying, check your heart. What passions and what pleasures are you chasing after? 
And then he gives a call back in verse 7 through 10. So our last point, James gives them a call back. Let's read one more, verse 7 through 10. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. We'll pause right there. Submit yourself, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So teach my song to rise to you when temptation comes my way. And when I cannot stand, I'll fall on you. Jesus, my hope and stay. We're told here in, in James 4 that we can fight temptation. No matter how deep the urge and the desire for the passions and pleasures of this world may be, we are told that if we resist, and this is a military word, to resist, to stand firm even, the devil, that he will flee, and that we can draw near to God. James is saying, flee from your sinful passions and pleasures, and flee to God. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. This is such a commonly recited uh, verse, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And, and, And the truth and the beauty of this is that God does indeed call us. In these moments of conflict where we are tempted, where we are overwhelmed with urges, we can resist the devil and we can draw near to God, knowing that he will draw near to us, secure us, and give us that stability in him once more. Again, if we are to allude to the prodigal son, we see that after the son has squandered away everything, after he has spent it on his passions, He returns home. He draws back to his father's house. And we see that as he does so, the father, not only was he waiting, but as the son was far off, the father came running. And that's the picture we see, and that's the picture we ought to hold when we hear that promise, to draw near to him, because he will draw near to you. He will run to you. So when we sing, Lord, I need you, Lord, I need you, Lord, I need you, We are assured that he will come. The truth is that the more we try to exalt ourselves, the more that we follow after our passions and our pleasures, the more we think that'll lift us up, the more the Lord humbles us. However, the more we humble ourselves before the Lord to come to him so that he may steer our passions and our desires in a holy way, we're told that he will exalt us. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt. See, the beauty of coming to God is that not only does he give us pleasure and passion, like it was said before, he gives it to us in the right portion and at the right time so that we can truly enjoy it for what it was meant for. Again, I want to dispel the notion that the Christian life is a call to just piety and sacrifice and boring, bland, mundaneness. In fact, the Christian life, as we live it properly before the Lord, is filled with so much passion, so many pleasures, but in a way where it won't hurt us, in a way that it would truly lift us up. So if you look at Romans 8, 32, 
the reason why we are constantly called back to come to God the Father is this. If he didn't spare his son and gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And what Paul is saying here is if God loved us to the point of giving us Jesus, his only son, so that we will be purchased and ransomed and cleansed from our sin, will he not also give us all that we need to enjoy the life that he has given to us? Would he not give us all that we need to be satisfied and passionate and pleased in him? And so James's ultimate call to the church, the call for us this morning today, is not simply redirect our passions and pleasures to something that seems and sounds and smells Christian, but it's to turn to God, knowing that he gives us proper passions and he gives us a proper pleasure in him. Some of you know, John Piper famously says, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. You know, I'm reminded of something so lovely that my wife says when she has prepared a heartfelt meal. After cooking, spending hours in the kitchen, she portions the meal she has given to us. She puts it on the table, and we all gather, me and the two boys. We're all hungry, and we're like, wow, this smells so good. This looks so good. And one of the most lovely things my wife says is, there's more of everything. After I do, the second best thing that I've heard in my life from my wife is, there's more of everything. What a beautiful reality. But friends, this is what our Heavenly Father says to us, having given to us our portion. He says, son and daughter, there is more of everything. And I love it because the statement of truth doesn't elicit greed, but it actually gives us a humble longing for more, a humble security of plenty, a deeper love for the one who gives. This is what God says when we come to him and we say, God, direct my passions, direct my pleasures. He says, there's more of everything, son. There's more of everything, daughter. How beautiful is that for us to humbly be secured in that truth? Friends, I read from that book in the beginning because it was recommended by my dear friend uh, who has now passed, Anthony Bourdain. And the reality is I consider him a dear friend, but he has no idea who I am. (laughs) But many of us feel the same way. When he passed, when he committed suicide, the world was devastated because many of us had followed his career. Many of us was taken on a great journey to see the passions and pleasures of this world. And this is not a knock on Anthony Bourdain necessarily, but I sought him in many ways as a great liver of life. He let me escape. He let me see and almost taste through his eyes and his lips what was out there. And it was shocking to a lot of people. It was shocking for me when we were told that he had taken his own life. The world thought, how could someone, a bon vivant, who knew all the pleasures and passions of the world, who searched far and wide, high and deep, who've tasted, who've sat down with famous people, who've tried many drugs, who've tasted and, 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 and been filled with euphoria. How can someone like this be so empty that when the cameras are off, he felt utterly alone? 
I think in this unfortunate snapshot of an individual, we can see that the reality of this world is there's never enough. There's never enough. And I got to confess to you, sometimes that's hard for me to believe. Because I always think there's more out there. There's more out there. Friends, when we come to the Lord, when we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. And he will say in his tender, fatherly voice, there's more of everything. Let's spend some time in prayer this morning. Of course, the overt and central message of James this morning is a call to repentance. But I think oftentimes when we hear that word, we just think we're supposed to feel a certain way, say certain words. But I want us to focus this morning and ask ourselves honestly before the Lord, what are we most passionate about? What do we find our deepest pleasures in? And come to the Lord and say, Lord, these are the things I'm passionate about. These are the things I long for. But I humbly ask that you would redirect my passions, redirect my pleasures. That you would show me how Christ can satisfy all these things. How you can secure me in your house. So let's go to the Lord now and I'll give us a few minutes just to come to the Lord with a humble heart. To say, Lord, I repent. Lord, I want to be filled with the things that you give me. Lord, I want more of everything. But I want it in the way you portion it for me in your wisdom. I want it in your way, in the way that you give it at the right time, because you know what's best for me. And help me to trust that, Lord. Let's pray like that for a few minutes.